All right, here we are. Here we are. What what is this? Uh, are we at fifty five? Is this fifty? Yeah, but first we uh, welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm I missed my because all our traditional all our listeners are returning listeners. Right, that's right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Here you are. Fifty six. This is that is the episode number. Fifty six. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And and science in between. And science yeah. in between. Yeah. I'm and, Ollie. And I'm Scott. And this is Scott. This is early Ollie. days of of season two of this fun it is it is this will be this will be the fourth episode uh of season two it's awesome and you know it's great to to do this and it's great to you know for all of you out there who are you're who are still downloading thank you thank you for being here you know thank you yeah and that's that's the show for today that's the show. Hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for um, coming. See you next time. We're just trying to build our <laughs> download numbers. So we're going to do a lot of short episodes. Short episodes that people can listen to, you know? Yeah. So um, we were we were talking about um, before the show what, what we were going to talk about in the show. And then we realized we were, were actually having the show before the show. And we're like, hold on. We got to. Very, very common for us. Very common for us. And I think what, what, it's going to seem at first like we're, you know, um, we have a big umbrella. I guess is the big, big way, to, the best way to describe this, because we were talking about some of the things that we want to do moving ahead in, in this uh, podcast. But then we realized that there's a lot of things that are bubbling up in a lot of different places that are all around this this topic or this movement about inclusion. Right. And so we, we thought we'd just, you know, unpack this and talk about some of those movements, you know, in, in our typical science in between way talking about it from what it looks like in science education what it looks like in education in general what it looks like in technology because there's lots of different like um tendrils to this inclusion movement that you know depending on where you're standing it's like okay this is an inclusive practice and this is an inclusive practice oh and this is an inclusive practice too and so and i and i think that's what we all want to do or at least you know a lot of us want to do right is create um spaces that are more inclusive for a diverse set of learners so that um, different students can come to our classes and be successful. And, and I think that what that's looking like is, you know, morphing and changing and there's lots of people being involved in that process. Right. Yeah. And I think I like, I like the term inclusive practice. I mean, I think inclusion can often get attached to uh, science, uh, to special education. Right. Exactly. right? So I, I think we want to be careful in that, we're talking much more broadly than that. So really we're talking about, as, as Ali said, inclusive practices. And I think the, the other way to think about that is, is we're thinking about equity, right? We're thinking about right. how, do, how do we provide access and support for all students so that they can, they can be part of these, these you know, classroom communities, specifically for us, classroom science communities, and how can they engage in the same kinds of practices that everyone else is already doing right and and uh and how do we structure physical and cultural environments to do that work to support those people doing right. you know so so you know and, it, and technical let's 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 make sure we fit sure. in technological yeah. parts too because i mean it's it is cultural and you know it is physical but it, it's also you know technological and and I think that as we you know venture more and more into technology playing a role in our classrooms we have to be really mindful of the fact that you know the the choices we make and the technologies we choose um, need to be inclusive. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, but, but you could also argue that technology is really a uh, uh, sort of the interface between the physical and the cultural, right? I mean, it's, oh, it's, right, right, it's, right, right. it's the thing that, um, you know, like depending on what time period you're in, people have different notions, even of what technology is, you know, yeah. the, black, the blackboard used to be a technology. So, yeah. um, we can so nerd yeah. out on that for a while if we wanted to we could. Yeah. We'll yeah. stay away from that though. Yeah. That's for another day. We can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think that if you've been with us for a while, then, you know, we, we spent a, a lot of time talking about Brian Brown's book. And I think that, that, um, the, the book itself presents a, um, a way to, you know, sort of broaden our science practices, our science teaching practices to be more inclusive to a population of students. Right. And specifically, I think he's talking about students of color or students that come from, you know, backgrounds of poverty or students that come from, you know, I think the book is what, what called science in the city. Right. And, yep. and it, it students that are coming from urban um, environments and students who come into uh, science classrooms who may not see themselves represented or may feel like they're outside of the processes of science and science education because they, you know, um, you know, we create, we create this like normative space, right. Where, and Mm -hmm. if they're not on board, then they're out, right. They're excluded. And, and then, and I think that is a way that's happening in science education, but it's not the only way it's happening in science education. Right. Well, and, and I think, you know, Brian's perspective, as, at least in that book, is largely focused on linguistic, right? Like that's, right, his, absolutely. that's his entry point into how do we think about equity and, and, and access. And he talks about how kids talk, right? And how that, how that mode of talking that kids engage in is different than science talk, but it's also different than traditional school talk right. often. And that's, that's the, the challenge is... Um, to include kids and, and to make kids part of the community who, um, who feel like everything about it is not them is not for them. So, right. And, and so it's creating a discourse community that's inclusive to uh, a variety of people. Right. And that's, and that is, you know, a way to make a, uh, an inclusive environment, but it's not the only way, or it's not the only way we should be making inclusive you know exactly right it, you can make there are, efforts in that way in lots of different uh, right dimensions let's just say yeah yeah and so one of the things that we keep um you know hoping to talk about down the road is ambitious science teaching yeah and and we are we're going to talk about the the book at some point um the ambition science t- teaching book um down the road at some point but um that was actually what this episode was going to be about right originally it was going to be hey let's talk about ambitious science teaching and then we were like going well ambitious science teaching we started to talk about how that really was a you know a an example of inclusive practices and then we started to see all of these things right Mm -hmm. and that's what kind of changed our focus off yeah. So, and we, we probably won't go too deep into ambitious science teaching today. Cause I think we just want to get a surface level talk of it. Cause we want, sure. as you say, you want to talk about maybe the, some of the technology ways that people Absolutely. are thinking about this and uh, other, other ways that people are, are trying to provide equity uh, in schools and there are myriad ways, but, um, but ambitious science teaching is, is an approach to teaching to science teaching that, um, that I take and that I have taken, uh, since before it got an official name. Um, and, and that naming and the, and the research that it's based on and the sort of fundamental practices and, and precepts and principles that, um, that 
make up ambitious science teaching come out of a long line of research that started uh, with Mark Winchell at the University of Washington. And then uh, he had a group of students, uh, uh, particularly uh, one group of students. So Jessica Thompson, Melissa Bratton and and uh, David Stroop, who um, sort of picked up and participated in. I don't, I don't know what the right word is. They were they were um, part of that initial research and characterization of these practices and, and going into schools and working with teachers. And it, it was it's it's an ongoing line of research um, by all those scholars and an increasingly large group of people that are either directly associated associated with the University of Washington. So they were graduate students or postdocs there, like Hosun Kang and Sarah Haganaw, um, or there are people like me who um, have been, you know, sort of connected to, but not directly part of the core research. We're doing our own research and our own practice that are. That, that follow the same precepts. Um, and there's a lot of those people, I'm not going to try to list them, but they're all across the country in all different, in all different contexts. And, uh, and it's, it's really, you know, I mean, fundamentally, the, the problem that AST was trying to solve, at least looking back, this is the way I would describe it, is, you know, the NGSS is a characterization of what kids should learn, um, as was the National Science Education Standards, which uh, preceded it. The problem with both of them is that neither of those characterizations actually say how you teach to achieve right. those goals. So they, they say, here's what students should learn or be able to do or the kinds of practices we want students to engage in. But what does a teacher do to make that happen? Well, but I think that's intentional, that's, right? That's intentional. Yeah, it, don't is want in, it, it is intentional, but because we're a local controlled sort of country where everything right. is adopted locally. And um, but. The problem with that is it makes it's one of the reasons, let's just say this, it's one of the reasons that reforms have had so little impact on on public schools right. is that if all you do is change how you describe what what students can learn or should learn or are able to do, then what what the research shows and folks like Elmore and others who've studied school change, right? What they say is, well, the teachers just rebrand what they're doing and they say, right. yeah, well, yeah, kids are doing that now. And I've been doing that forever. And I don't know why we're having this conversation. This is the new math, new math, new math conversation. Yeah, I do um, that. I do that yeah. already. Yeah, exactly. I do that already. And I'm, and I'm actually pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's part of the, the problem that was trying to be solved here was, well, what, how can we characterize what we're talking about? If we're really going to accomplish this kind of learning for kids, what does teaching have to look like so that, there's less of a, yeah, I already did that, though it still happens just as much. So the terms there, like you've been, we've talked about ambitious science teaching a handful of times, and you know we've we've talked, uh, you know, a, 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 about it, I guess. But what? The, so what's what's the characteristic, you know, changes that happen if a teacher is employing ambitious science teaching in their classrooms? Yeah. So I mean, I, we have talked. <laughs> even when we haven't been naming it, we've been talking right. a lot about it. Right. So, um, so basically it may, it's made up of four sets of practices. Um, so, and at some points they've been called just practices and now they're talked, talked about as sort of sets or groups of practices. So the first one is a planning practice. And then there are three discourse or enactment practices, right. Things that you're doing with kids in the classroom. Um, and, and really the fundamental idea of the planning practice is something we've talked about, which is, you know, you want, you want kids to explain phenomenon. So 
the curriculum should be phenomenon driven and it should lead to a causal explanation. Um, so the planning practice involves developing that phenomenon and causal explanation and then a, and then a se sequence or series of activities for kids to engage in to, to go to do that. And then the three core discourse practices are eliciting kids' initial ideas. So you, you want to know what they know. So you get them to talk through the phenomena. There's supporting their ongoing thinking, which is sort of the middle bit where you're sort of building up the pieces that they need. And then there's making evidence-based explanations, which is at the end, bringing all that together and sort of revisiting the phenomenon and building an explanation. So that's the broad strokes characterization of how ambitious science teaching thinks about science teaching talks about it. Um, and it, it, the difficult thing, as is often the case with this, is it's both a subtle and a profound shift in the way that right. we do teaching. So a lot of the activities that fall in the middle of this, the sort of middle bit where you're supporting ongoing thinking, those sometimes change very little as you move from an, uh, a traditional to an ambitious uh, framing of your practice. But, um, but the framing is the thing, right? And this is why mm -hmm. going back to a friend of the show, Brian Brown, like it's, it's not so much the things you do, it's the way you talk about them that really yeah. matters. And so w w let's talk about why that gets put in the inclusion box. Why does that get put into the inclusive practices box? You know, yeah. unpack that a little bit for us. Cause I think, you know, I, I see it. Um, I see it as being more a more inclusive practice than some other practices that teachers employ. But, you know, make yeah. the case. Make, make the, the case, case for me, Scott. All right. I'm going to do my best, Ollie. All right. Do you have you have your gavel ready to back? I do. I'll, I'll roll. I'll, I will order. roll. Yes. Out of order. You, sir, are out of order. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is actually a criticism that's been leveled against ambitious science teaching and other forms of uh of core practices kinds of teaching or um high leverage practices where where there's a, an attempt to at characterizing the practices of of some teaching area um but i think the and and there's work that's responded responded to that so particularly jessica thompson and and uh and kirsten marr Heather Johnson, April Lumen, D. Scipio, um, they, they just had a piece in Science Teacher about uh, critical and cultural ambitious science teaching, um, so sort of framing it that way. But I think fundamentally why it is more inclusive is it's built around the idea that kids' ideas are valuable, right? I mean, it right. starts with a phenomenon at, and it begins with kids' initial explanations, right? So that in and of itself, that is one of the key pieces that allows this to be a more open to at least equitable practice kind of teaching, right? Because it says all kids, hopefully all kids, all kids' ideas are valuable. And the point of the beginning of any experience in science is to get kids' initial ideas out on the table so that we can talk about them. Now, that doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't mean that that can't go awry that people can't can't do bad things once you get right once you get kids ideas on the table but i think that's one of the fundamental pieces that makes it a more equitable practice right so it's it's inclusive from a meeting making space or from a you know a discourse space and so that people's ideas are are valuable things to consider it's an, an inclusive space from a democratic teaching perspective yeah. Because it's 
creating a space where you know students' voices are are valued and students' ideas are valued, and that we create an environment where those things can be discussed and debated, and and you know that we analyze those things and and also respect those things, right? Right, and I think yeah. that's where you kind of dipping into it like okay this is where the wrong things can happen or bad things can happen right because like you could say well those are stupid ideas like come on now now we're going to divide the class into groups based on your ideas and here's the dummy kid table and here's the smart kid table the blue birds are over here the red birds are over here brown birds are the brown birds are over there (laughs) the brown birds just read the book yeah we we know what's up with the brown birds yeah just keep your heads down but that that that's the thing is it's it's really about you know creating a an environment where ideas are respected and challenged in a respectful yeah. way right and yeah, not just it, challenged from like a hey i have a louder voice but challenged from a scientific perspective in right. that okay well what kind of evidence could we bring, bring to bear on those ideas and with the hope that those you know ideas can change and morph and evolve as more evidence is presented yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, that th- there are ways that I, I guess what I would say is about ambitious science teaching is that it is designed to provide an opportunity or opportunities for more equitable practice. Are those taken up? Well, it depends. And I think right. this is the thing about teaching. And we've talked about this at least indirectly before, but like teaching is a practice, right? It, it's yeah. not, it can't be written down and scripted. It doesn't work that way. Even the even the te- even the worst examples of the kind of teaching that we don't like that are highly scripted and directed, there's still some level of responsiveness to the kids in your room. Now, it may be very low and limited, but you you can't it's not like watching a movie, right, where there's no interaction. Um, worst case, it's sort of like a, a video game that you sort of have you're on a track and you have to follow right. things. But um, or one of those choose your adventure books, right? Yes, like exactly. A, right. Yeah. Yeah. Which so you, I you think know, you, I, I'm sure you loved you're a, you're a choose your own adventure sure, book guy. Of course, man. I mean, I, hate know, it. I hated those. Of course you did. Yeah, you just wanted like, you. It's just the world works out the way it works out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. See, you can tell we've been friends for a while. <laughs> yeah. Free will. What are you talking about? It just happens. Man. It just happens. It's just all it's all fate, man. <laughs> fate. It's like witches at a cauldron like <laughs> boil boil toil and trouble whatever no that's not boil and bubble i don't know my yeah, shakespeare's know. a little rusty sorry man. oh my shakespeare's non-existent i got like romeo and juliet and maybe a handful of others and that's about it yeah, yeah. well so let's uh let's put a pin in ambitious science teaching and say yeah, we'll revisit that we'll come back yeah, to that we'll, we'll come yeah. back to it and and uh and i want to hear so this is something that you were talking about so i want you right. to talk about I want you to talk a little bit about universal design for learning, because I think that is a thing that gets also thrown around a lot and it's got three letters. So it must be similar to AST because it's got three letters. And I would say like, there's, you know, it's been around for a while, um, but it has been bubbling a lot um, over the last, like uh, sort of through the pandemic Um, Mm. because I like, I think a lot of schools, uh, uh, you know, were moving stuff online and it was privileging certain students over others. Yep. And, and that is a challenge, right? So we, so the idea that behind universal design for learning actually comes from architecture. Uni- universal design says that 
what you try to do as a, as a designer is to uh, afford as much use as you can and, and afford as, much, as many different kinds of users as possible. Um, and so the, the, the classic example is the, the curb cut. Right. And the curb cut right. is the, you know, if you're walking on a sidewalk and come to the end of a, a sidewalk and you have to transition from sidewalk to street and back from street to sidewalk and that curb cut, um, I think people probably think it's designed for, for, you know, people who use wheelchairs and that, and that's a population that it supports, but the curb cuts are, are actually designed really thoughtfully so that it affords more different types of users. Cause you can see that there's like the little bumps, right? If you've ever walked down a curb mm-hmm. cut, there's like little bumps right there. And those bumps are there so that somebody who, who, you know, might be blind, you know, comes to that and can feel the difference in the sidewalk, not only the, the difference in the fact that it's, you know, sloping downward, but there's also that, right? So that like little signal right there is designed to give, you know, a, you know, certain group of users, some, you know, cues. Um, But it also affords all sorts of other users that maybe, you know, at at first glance, it didn't, you you might not think about like, you know, if I'm, I, I can remember when I was, you know, had young children and I was using a stroller to walk around our neighborhood, um, you know, going from one, you know, sidewalk to another sidewalk is really difficult without curb cuts um and so you kind of come down and there's some curbs in our neighborhood that haven't been moved to curb cuts yet um so they you know there's a good like six inches in some spaces where you have to navigate down a a stroller and then get back up the next one and it is really a challenge but and I don't know if the curb cuts were ever used for, you know, were ever designed so that some middle-aged guy could push a stroller, mm. but it affords that use too. And it right. supports those, those users. Um, same thing for when I was teaching my, my kids to ride a bike, we would ride around the neighborhood and I would have them riding around um, and moving from sidewalk to sidewalk. And they would, you know, those cur- curb cuts, you know, with the little kids in their tra- training wheels would be perfect. Uh, maybe somebody who's a walker, you know, maybe somebody who's, you know, up in age and needs to use a walker to get around town. Um, that's another use that's supported. And so while people, it's come people out. People doing deliveries, right? So right. you've got a big load of stuff and you've got a hand truck and you're trying to get into the restaurant with your, all your food that you're delivering and you got to get it up. There. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uses are, you know, infinite. We could come up with like tons of people that are supported from that. And, and the, uh, the idea is with UDL is how can we take those same sorts of practices and bring them into our classrooms with the way we present material, the way we engage students, the way we get them to share their ideas so that um, we aren't excluding people and saying we're designing this only for a, you know, a handful of people, but in, in, in a way trying to cast that wide net as well to try to you know, support as many different kinds of learners. And so under UDL are you know, three big principles. There's a principle of providing multiple means of engagement that we need, when we engage learners in the process, are we doing this in, in, in trying to provide as, as many different ways of doing that as possible? So you know, some of this is about recruiting interest and some of it's about like sustaining effort and persistence. And it's also 
um, about promoting self-regulation with our students. Um, so there's that principle. But then there's also the principle about providing multiple means of representation. And this is really like, you know, about how we get students to, you know, look at the material, engage in the material. So like, you know, for instance, a big one for, for science is, you know, the language you use and the symbols we use, you know, and the, like our, is, um, you know, when we represent that content to students, are all students able to access that? Um, some of that could be technological and some of it could be physical, right? And so we have to be really thoughtful about like, okay, we put up, a, we put an equation on, you know, is that something that all students are going to be able to access? Whether, or we put some terminology is a good example of this is like, as we rushed to move stuff online, right? We rushed to move our content online. How many of them had captions? Right. You know, like a caption is a, is, is a practice, is a inclusive practice, an inclusive practice that, you know, falls well within um, UDL because captioning, you, you, you may think it just, you know, supports students who have a hearing impairment, but it actually supports lots of other populations too. Yep. Like, so if, you know, I'm putting up a video talking about like momentum and I haven't captioned it, or I've had a caption where it was auto-generated, <laughs> Right. right that right, right? Yeah. where for those of us who have a little bit of an accent i don't know anyone who has a little bit of an accent maybe you know <laughs> <No>. this guy, <laughs> this guy uh, with my yeah. with with my pittsburgh accent but you know it's sort of the auto generation of captioning you know is all over the place from for me and so mm-hmm. um maybe a student who you know has a hearing impairment is trying to follow along and you know maybe he's watching if i'm on camera maybe trying to read my lips or maybe looking at the captioning and the captioning's all over the place but let's say we have a student who is an english english language learner right and so so i i think i said this in the previous episode that i'm, I'm learning french you know through duolingo and so i'm a you know fl fll i guess a frank french language learner but i find that like i can read french better than i can hear it mm-hmm. and so whenever like because duolingo provides these options for me to hear someone speak and i have to like type out what they're saying i have to slow it down really 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 slow for me to because it's just so fast for me yeah um that when we caption our videos, we're providing a way so that an English language learner can, can actually read this stuff as it's being said. And so if the captioning is accurate, so that's why it's universal, right? That's, that's the universality of that practice is that, and that's the inclusiveness of that practice is that mm-hmm. you're designing it. You may be saying, okay, I'm going to put the captioning for a student who may have a hearing impairment, but the reality is it's going to support some other students too, that you might not know. Like maybe somebody who is, at home in a very loud environment and is unable to listen to the video, you know, or maybe in a place where they can't listen and, and now they can, can still read and follow along. And so that's an example of how we want to provide multiple means of representation. And the last principle under UDL is about providing multiple means of action expression. And this one really talks about like, how do we get students to express their ideas? How do we get them to, to be involved? And, and some of this, I think, is, you know, in our, 
I think a lot about it from the standpoint of assessment practices. Like, you know, are we assessing students a variety of different ways? And do our assessment practices privilege certain populations over others? And so one of the things I try to do as much as possible is, is inject some sort of choice into it so that I, I outline what my objectives are and what my learning targets are. And I say to students, okay, how do you, how do you want to demonstrate your learning? How do you want to be able to, to show that you've learned these things? And so some students may choose to write a paper because that's the way they feel like, you know, they can best express their ideas, but somebody else might like want to record a video and, and do that because that's the, the, a, a better way for them to, you know, express their ideas and to, to show what they've learned. And so I think that that, well, this is the, you know, I don't know, the thumbnail version of UDL. I mean, sure. you could, there are tons of books out there on UDL that you can read. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, my, my, my friend Tom Tobin wrote one that for higher ed about UDL and, and reaching all students. And that's a great one. So if you're in a collegiate environment, want to check that out. That's a, that's a really great one. Um, but the, 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 I, I think it, it's a really good way of thinking about the inclusiveness of our presentation specifically in online environments, in classroom environments, across the boards, right? Across the yeah. boards. I think it's, yeah. it's a, but I think that, you know, sticking within the, the technolo- technology side of things, I think one of the things that is another way of considering inclusiveness is the open education movement. And this has come up a couple of times along the way, like sure. we talked about like open, open science, right? What's the open yeah, science uh, curriculum? Open group? Syed, yeah. That's open Syed. curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is, so I think most people just go, Oh, it's a, it's a free way to get stuff, right? It's free. Sure. Um, but I, the open movements more than that. I mean, that's a, a really good way of uh, looking at it because it's in, inclusive in that, you know, if you're looking for textbooks for your class and you're coming from, you know, a school without a lot of means, you can get some really good stuff out there digitally that are, or, or even physically uh, at very low cost. But I think that um, more than just looking at it from an economical standpoint, I think it comes back to that democratic standpoint, right? Because I think the mm-hmm. open education movement is, is really opening up, like who gets to publish a textbook, right? Like right. who gets to make a podcast? Who gets to make a podcast, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 I mean, just, you know, old white guys like you and me. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's... but it opens it up for everybody else too. And that's the, that's the yeah. awesome thing about the, the open education movement is that it, there are lots of voices that are coming to bear on these, these, um, these conversations. And, and I think that's awesome. And so you can check out all sorts of, I mean, maybe we could put, drop some of these in, in the show notes. For sure. You know, um, Merlot is a great uh, mm-hmm. open educational uh, repository. You can check that out. Um, I mean, there's tons of them, right? There's just like so, so much good stuff. And yeah. th- this was, I, again, one of the things that um, I think the pandemic was a catalyst for exploring these because, you know, it's like, okay, how do we, how do we get textbooks to our students, right. you know? And, and so they were, teachers started to look online and, or how do we provide like really quality resources, educational resources for our students when they're participating from a distance? Well, I mean, there's a lot of really great science simulations that are open. There are really great resources that are in that open territory that can, 
you know, support students learning. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. And I, and I think the, the commonality here is to think about like the pattern, whether it's ambitious science teaching or, or um, UDL or, or open education. Um, the idea is that at least initially, when you, when you develop these practices to support particular groups of learners, you find out that it actually supports a much broader right. group than you anticipated. Yeah. And then I think the second part of that, which is at least where we are with AST, um, is you can say, oh, well, we could actually intentionally try and find out what some of these folks need and design learning environment components to support them. And that will probably also support so, so it, it provides you a new, a whole sort of new channel or pathway to start exploring, like, how do we make educational environments better by identifying groups of people who need support, figuring out what kind of support we can give them, and then recognizing that that support actually helps everybody. Yeah. And, and the people that, that don't need it, don't need it. But the people that do need it, it's present and it doesn't, it doesn't cause barriers for the people who don't need it. And it reduces barriers for the people who do. And, and really, that's what we're talking about. Like, if all of these things are about increasing participation in whatever community we're talking about, whether it's a yeah. science classroom or whether it's a democracy, right? Like, we want our, our goal should be to get as many voices into the mix as possible because that's a fundamental principle of AST is like more ideas are better, right? Because more ideas are, are more ideas that we can test and figure out. And, and the same is true for democracies and for everything else, right? If, if we have lots of ideas, that's good. We just have to know what to do with them once we have them. Yeah. Like I, 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 it, I'd say one of the trends over the last like five years in higher education is the, um, the identification of uh, DEI people or personnel or like leadership who are in charge of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And while I, I, I celebrate that, I celebrate the fact that there is this increased focus on, on diversity, equity, inclusion. I think the most important thing that we need to do is to recognize that individual teachers in their classrooms are, can be the most impactful people for diversity equity and inclusion. And so it's yeah. not something that we're going to uh, relegate to, oh, that's that person's job, right? right. I think that's the, the fear I have is that when, when institutions, whether uh, you know, it's K to 12 or higher ed, identify somebody as like the DEI person, that it shifts some of that responsibility or some of that power, right? That we have mm -hmm. as, as classroom teachers to be having such a huge impact in, you know, in our classrooms. It's like, yeah. yeah and, and I think that's, I mean, while my hope is that those folks uh, act as catalysts at their institutions to, you know, really promote the, the exploration and adoption of inclusive practices, I worry that it's like, okay, that's their, that's their job. It's not my job. I'm not the DEI person. I'm, you know, I'm a science guy. What do I have to do with, you know, DEI? Well, hold on. Hold on, yeah. champ. Let's roll that back a little bit. Yeah, know? well, and it has it has analogies to or parallels to what's happened over the history with technology, right? Which right. is this debate about is technology, do we want a technology teacher? Do we want, 
in teacher education? Do we want a class about technology or do yeah. we want technology infused across the curriculum? And it's like, well, there are disadvantages to both of those, right? And, yeah. and I think you've pointed them out, right? So really what we want is both, sort of, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> like, what are our goals here? What are we trying to accomplish? Because yeah. the, the standalone technology class, I mean, I taught that when I was at Michigan and it was not a class I was enthusiastic about, right? It was like, here's Excel and here's what you can do with it. Here's, yeah. you know, and... And, uh, um, so, so yeah, I think DEI is the same way. If you pull it out, then it feels disconnected and it feels like it's not a part of everything, but if you put it in, then it can get lost in the everything. Um, so it, yeah, it's, I think it's a, a serious challenge, but not one we're going to take up today because now it's no. time for joy. Yeah. Uh, I have, I have a joy. Do you? That's I do. Well prepared. <laughs> yes. Carry, carry got- on. Yes. All right. So, I mean, not to geek out on, on, uh, on more comic book stuff and, mm-hmm. but I saw Shang-Chi, uh-huh. uh, the newest, um, Marvel movie that just came out like a week or so ago. It is awesome. It is awesome. And, um, the, I'd say the first 45 minutes of this movie is some of the best, like if you're in the action movies, if you're into, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, if you're into those, you know, movies where that like lots of martial martial arts are, you know, demonstrated and, you know, a lot of fight scenes, yeah. you are just going to love the first 45 minutes of this movie because there's there's a scene and I won't no spoilers, but there's a scene where they're fighting on some scaffolding, which are like like far up like and i i have a little like ledge you know fear i have like a fear of ledges and so my, my that <laughs> like whole time characterizes a fear of ledges i'm not afraid not of heights i'm not, not afraid of heights i'm yes, afraid you uh, are. Let's, it's I'm, okay no, this is it's not space, the same Ollie. thing i am not afraid of like being on a plane that's a height oh. i'm afraid no right. it, that's okay. the characterization that's how i because i'm not afraid of heights like i like if you're, I saying, wanna, you're saying this is a clinical characterization that you're it is like it, i think they're they're <laughs> clinically different i think they are i wish you all could see ollie's face <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to shang chi yeah, the topic Shang-Chi. at hand yeah they're uh they're fighting in the scaffolding that is like you know hundreds of stories up and how they get there that's you know part yeah. of the story but they get there and the fighting is intense it is intense and they're like you know doing these acrobatic things on this scaffolding and fighting and it is awesome it is awesome um now it does get like some of the cgi and you know visual effects in the in the you know third act of the movie gets a little messy from my perspective but i think the storyline is one that's really really touching and one that uh i think i mean if you're looking for there to be a lot of people from other, you know, the MCU, like Iron Man and Captain America and all those guys showing up, I, I, I'll disappoint you that, that they don't, they don't show up. This is a standalone movie that sort of, you know, at some places intersects with um, some other stuff, but it's a standalone movie and it's great. And I think that, you know, to, to talk about, um, inclusion and inclusive practices, like almost everyone in this movie is of of Asian descent, and in a lot of ways, it's like it's a lot like Black Panther in that yeah, Black Panther that in comparison. increased access to the Marvel universe for you know people of color, and so this does that same sort of thing for Asian Americans that they can see themselves 
in you know as a superhero as people who are you know and and i think there may be one person non-asian person in the movie maybe one maybe two i can think about it but the it's awesome it is awesome in that in that representation and i think it's it's trying to make that marvel world more inclusive and that's awesome nice uh, see how yeah. I brought that back to our topic at hand? Yeah, good good yeah. on you there. Just me yeah, pat just, yeah, myself. Yeah, I was saying, don't break, don't break your arm, pat yourself <laughs> on the back there, brother. Yeah. All right. Um, so the joy I have is, um, is that I'm going to talk about is, uh, is a book I'm reading. I'm about halfway through it and I'm enjoying it. We'll see. I'm a little, I'm a little worried about it, but I'll explain why in a second. But um, it's called wild. It's by Carol Strayer. Um, and it's about a woman who hikes the Pacific crest trail, which is the trail that runs from Mexico to, um, to Canada. She doesn't actually hike the whole thing, but it's sort of her, it's one of these books. That's about a person who has, has some struggles in her life and then is try and sees this journey as a transformational potential transformation for her. And then talks through her walk basically. Um, so what I'm, I, I am enjoying it and I'm, what I'm worried about and what I'm hoping they don't do is the simple answer that, you know, at the end of this three months of hiking this trail, she's like transformed into a great person after having all this sort of personal struggle, but we'll see if that's, uh, stay tuned and I'll let you know. But so far she's a great writer. It's a, it's, it's a thoughtful and interesting. made book. a movie out of that. Yeah. I think Reese, yeah, with, Witherspoon uh, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, uh, my wife has read, read that book and really liked it. So oh, good. So that, updated on that. Yeah. 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 So I mean, I, you know, like I say, uh, maybe it won't turn out that way. I don't, I don't love those like easy transformation books because I think that's not the way the world works, but, um, but I'm, I'm liking um, how she, how she writes and how she weaves the story of the hike into the sort of unfolding story of, her backstory of her life so yeah that's cool good wow carol strayer yeah i'm always talking about like movies and you're always like i'm reading this book i'm reading this no, book i, I gotta you I, yeah i gotta step up my I step movies. up my game you know come on now, come on now. <laughs> this is not a competition and and that that is that is incorrect characterization i i i bristle at that you bristle look at I you bristle. bristling i'm bristling back here that's about <laughs> yeah. all i can do with this kind of hair i can bristle yes um well that's a good place for us to uh you know end the episode with you bristling <laughs> yes what better way than, than the the brillo pad of this show to bristle a little bit before we end uh how dare you bristle how dare you bristle somewhere else please <laughs> take your bristle and get the heck oh, out of here <laughs> oh wow wow i thought you were gonna go dark there for a second no. we're gonna have an explicit no. tag yeah no Thank not you. at all Hey, well, thanks for being here and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, in between. See you then. Bye now.